Blog Talk Radio.
Ladies and gentlemen, I am the Johnny Fever of movie podcasts. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to the Long Road to Ruin. I am also your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm not only mortified, but I'm feeling a little under the weather. Uh, what are you going to do? It's dirty work, hashtag, but somebody's got to do it. Hashtag time to murder it. And tonight, the Long Road to Ruin proudly brings to you Clint Eastwood's Spaghetti Western Trilogy, The Man With No Name, a.k.a. The Dollars Trilogy, Fistful of Dollars for a Few Dollars More Than the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And because he picked it, here is my illustrious co-host, the man of a thousand blogs. He likes to refer to you as his babies, and only he can tell you why. Here he is, folks, the not-mandated reporter who is not, frankly, mortified, Mr. Sean Comer. How you doing, sir? Hello. I'm actually your friendly neighborhood cinema snob filling in tonight because Sean was just a little bit too crestfallen by this afternoon's news of Ray Harryhausen's death to get out of bed for anything less than a, a naked dugging with Christina Hendricks and olive oil. Now, he told me that tonight you're going to be watching a couple of Clint Eastwood's very most revered films. I must say I'm just a tad bit disappointed that I actually pulled myself out of bed and into my black suit for anything less than every which way but loose. Okay, you know what? I really hope my Brad Jones impression sounded better in my head and to me than it did just now because, quite frankly, that's just my excuse for the fact that I feel like hammered fuck right now. I am indeed Sean Comer. Um, and to explain, it's funny you make the Johnny Fever reference because you goddamn plagiarist, that's my gimmick. <laughs> Whatever. I stole it. It belongs to me now. Um, <clears throat> what is it? Uh, something ownership is, uh, when you, when you have it in your lap, it's three fourths of the law or something along those lines. May Jeffrey Harris drunk dial you every Saturday night for the rest of your life. <laughs> Listen, it wasn't your idea to play Metallica covering the Ecstasy of Gold. It was mine. Therefore, I'm the Johnny Fever of movie podcasts. Fair play, fuck muffin. You know, here here's the question, and I think we should spend the next hour talking about this instead of the Dollar Trilogy. How many people actually get the reference to Johnny Fever? How many people listening to this podcast know what in the blue hell a Johnny Fever is? You know what? I honestly have been doing that shit on the three R's since I started writing this column. And I think one, one of my readers got it right off the bat. If others did, they haven't mentioned it. Um, I eventually kind of solidified it for those who didn't by throwing in the infamous moment of booger um, at the end of each column now. But kids, if you don't get it, if you don't get this reference... I implore you, go out and seek forth the one and only, seek forth, God, my grammar, seek out the one and only season of this show that actually made it onto DVD. Um, it really is one of the all-time great, 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 Actually, great. don't even bother with that. Just go on YouTube and uh, and watch the Thanksgiving episode. You'll thank Did me you when it's over. Does that does that too, because all you have to know is just turkeys can't fly. Ultimately, that's, <laughs> that is that is the big way from that from that show. Well, the, what you need to understand is that the turkeys mounted a counterattack. You know, it's it's one of those shows that's a shame because kind of like how it delayed Daria from many many moons from coming to DVD. Um, this is a show that's only available in one season because replacing all the. Uh, 
the music. All just music got probably got just so ungodly extensive that somebody probably just went fuck every bag of this noise. Um, you know that doesn't explain why Night Court's still not available on DVD. Look, we've completely lost the topic of this show. But spaghetti western, Sean. That's what we're here to talk about. Get your mixing bowl ready and your tomato soup and your tomato pasta. Tomato pasta. Hi, I'm welcome to Long Road to Ruin. I'm Mark Radlitz, the mandated reporter, and here's Sean Comer. Now, Sean, you picked Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know what? It you know what? It terrifies me right now that we just debuted this podcast. It, we're we're no longer just on four one one. We're no longer just on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we are also now, as of tonight, for the very first time, we are being featured on ManicExpression.com. Um, where this week we have gotten a really warm welcome from a couple of back episodes that we put up there. And lo and behold, this is the first impression they're getting of us. Yep, and neither one of us is either high or drunk. Now let me ask you this, Sean. Um, I picked a uh, a bevy of our first couple of uh, movies that we did. I was really, you know, I, I pounded on the desk and I, you know, I, I, I banged my shoe on the table and I said, I will bury you if we don't talk about Batman. And, you know, you, you've had a couple of choices yourself, paranormal activities and such. But this was the very first one, the Dollars Trilogy, The Man With No Name, featuring uh, Clint Eastwood and a cast of um, people who no one knows. Um, this is the very first time you picked a trilogy that I had absolutely no reference. When you said, hey, let's do the Dollars Trilogy after we did the Mexico Trilogy, uh, I went, what's a Dollars Trilogy? And I'll tell you why. I'm not as familiar with the with Clint Eastwood's uh, films, especially his early films. Um, I'm not a big fan of westerns. I mean, I watch one, um, saw The Unforgiven, etc. But I uh, love Django Unchained, by the way. But I, I, I it, it's not you know, given a choice between um, a man in a robot suit bl- uh, blowing things up and a western, I, I go to the former, not the latter. So again, I'm not as familiar with the Clint Eastwood westerns. So when you proposed doing the Dollar Trilogy, I was intrigued. After having watched the Dollar Trilogy, the first thing I can t- I can say to you is I wish you had proposed doing this before we did the Mexico Trilogy, because now I understand why Quentin Tarantino said to Robert Rodriguez, "This could be your Dollar Trilogy," and I definitely saw some parallels between the two, especially the epic, overblown um, c- conclusions to the trilogy as such. But I want to hear from you what. What made you decide to do this now? Well, I'll tell you why. For one thing, just to get the personal note out of the way, these legitimately are three of my very favorite movies. Um, And that's particularly significant because, historically, I'm not a big Western fan. Uh, I can count the Westerns that I genuinely, truly, truly love on probably about one hand. Um... There's, well, yeah, no coincidence that one of the one of the other ones is a Clint Eastwood one, and that's Unforgiven. Another one is uh, High Plains Drifter, also a favorite of mine. Um, uh, I grew up with a dad who really adored westerns because they were a big part of his childhood. Uh, they were some of his very favorite movies growing up because he was very big on liking movies that maintain a certain sense of realism on on feeling somewhat plausible and not too far-fetched. 
But I never got quite as into him as he did. However, this was one of the exceptions. Um, And in part, it's because it's really unlike a lot of other Westerns because this was Italian director Sergio Leone's effort to truly reinvent the genre. Because when a lot of people think of Westerns, the Westerns that they think of are of your standard... John Wayne, uh, Howard Hawks, John Ford kind of variety. Um, very much the uh, white hat hero, black hat villains, uh, swooning damsels. And I don't say that entirely badly because one of my other favorite westerns is actually a John a John Wayne one called McClinock. Um, one I have very, very fond memories of watching with my dad growing up. However, by this point, um, Leone felt, and justifiably so, that those westerns of the mid to late 50s of the heyday of the genre had really run their course and kind of become almost, almost caricatures of themselves, which is funny because this was also right around the era of the great TV westerns like Gunsmoke, Rawhide, um, et cetera. I probably I might get a couple out of the area here, and I apologize for that. Uh, Half Gun, Will Travel, The Rifleman, any other ones you might be able to think of, and which were very much the same, which were very much the same as the classic westerns. Um, and Leone, at the same time, also saw that there was a niche in Europe where this could be filled. Um, because Italians even found the American Westerns pretty uh, pretty laughable. So what he really did was he really took the Italian filmmaking style and made a Western with it. And now let's, stop that, for a, let's stop for a second. When you say the Italian filmmaking style, what are you talking about to people who don't understand what that means? We'll get into that. I, I want to save some of that particularly for when we talk about for a few dollars more. Because that's one where actually in Roger Ebert, in Roger Ebert's um, in his review of the movie where he made some great points, but things like the scope of ideally the scope of the character's vision is limited very much to where the screen ends. So some shots may not quite make sense if you're looking at them the way an American viewer would, because we're used to certain rules and conventions of American filmmaking. Um, It also has a very gritty look, different characterizations. It's the rise of the anti-hero, which brings me to to, uh, another historical point about the movie. This was obviously the Western debut, the the real breakout of Clint Eastwood. Um, And the funny thing is, he got this part because... Leone couldn't afford his first choice, which was Henry Fonda. Uh, Charles Bronson basically told him that his script was a piece of shit. We'll get to the script shortly. Um, which, you know, if you know your history, is hilarious because those two would both be two of the stars that would later carry Once Upon a Time in the West in 1968, directed by Sergio Leone. Um, of the remaining actors who turned it down, the two biggest names are arguably... Steve Reeves, and James Coburn. Uh, Coburn, of course, himself a veteran of many Westerns. Steve Reeves may be best known uh, for playing Hercules. 
in several B sword and sandals epics. Um, and being somewhat of a contemporary of Arnold Schwarzenegger's movie and bodybuilding idol Reg Park. Um, it was when Richard Harrison turned him down that Harrison actually turned Clint, actually suggested Clint Eastwood, who had been playing a real white hat in, during his time on Rawhide. And by that point, Eastwood felt that he'd really run his run his course playing that that role, and he wanted to really try out being an anti-hero. Um, just to kind of get the last, most obvious historical note about the very start of all this out of the way, um, this is not an original movie. It's very influenced by the John Ford Westerns, but this is a remake. Um, in fact, it's an unauthorized remake of another excellent film and another one of my favorites, which is Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo. Well, specifically, we're talking about here a fistful of dollars because the next two are not remakes, as I, as I understand them. Right. The, the next two are originals, <clears throat> but um, this one was was unauthorized. And the thing you have to remember is that Kurosawa sued over it. He was he was not happy. He was not happy about it. And actually, during the course of the lawsuit, which ended with Leone agreeing to pay out, I believe, fifteen uh, percent of the take of it and a hundred thousand dollars to Kurosawa. Um, he pointed out how actually a lot of his take on it was that it was very similar to. Um, a number of Italian of Italian stories, um, and how he didn't really he acknowledged some service to uh, to Yojimbo, obviously, but said, well, it wasn't a complete ripoff, but still, it was uninspired. Um, or not uninspired. I'm sorry. Oh my God, that's uh, that's truly insulting. It was unauthorized by Kurosawa to remake it. It's just that in this one obviously we're summing out Japan for the American for the American West. We're subbing out the masterless Ronin in uh Yojimbo for the man with for the man with no name. Uh for the lone guns the lone gunslinger assassin in a fistful of dollars. So Really, if you look back on it, it's historical from a number of perspectives, but my favorite one is it's the one that, in my opinion, really best captures the spirit of the American West rather than there necessarily being that persistent, clear, black and white, that clear, you know, thick black line between good and evil, between right and wrong. Um... So I think that, to me, makes it the most enjoyable to watch and the easiest to immerse yourself in as you kind of, as you don't have the fact that so many characters are caricatures necessarily drawing you out of it. Now, these movies were made uh, back in the 60s. <clears throat> you had, um, where did it go? Uh Fistful of Dollars, which came out in 1964, for a few dollars more, 65, and then The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly in 66. And 
I always enjoy going back and watching uh, films prior to 1980. Um, I, I generally sit in the 70s, but even uh, the few films that I've watched in the 60s, because you it, it forces you to sit down and really watch the movie. These are not movies that you can watch with your laptop up, you know, and, and being on Facebook. I find I, I tried that once with one of these, and I missed so much because, you know, the the problem with a lot of modern movies today is they um obviously they dumb things down for the widest audience possible but they make things incredibly obvious and bright and colorful and and all of that um but you know they don't want you to miss anything whereas these movies if you if you're not paying attention you miss details and one of the things that i noticed about um all three movies but especially a fistful of dollars is how quiet the movie is you know there's um, like if you think about sort of like the more modern silly movies like Transformers or something, where there's stuff happening constantly and there's constant noise and there's music and you know you're just it's it's a barrage of stimuli. This is the exact opposite. There are no, lar- there are large portions of this film where I it would be wrong to say nothing is happening, but you are forced to you 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 are forced to uh, focus on only one of your senses. Because you know you've got these panoramic shots where people are walking and there's nothing and you don't hear anything, you know, or there's um, detail in a conversation between two characters and it's it's just it's going at a pace where they're not slowing down so that you can so that you can catch up. It's it's just happening and you and it draws you in. The the very first one, Fistful of Dollars, really really captured my attention and I'm going to be speaking. Um, from the point of view of somebody who's watched this for the first time, as opposed to somebody who, you know, like the previous podcast we did where I was, you know, multiple viewings and I was immersed in the culture. There's a lot of what you're going to get from me tonight, folks, is reaction for the first time. Go ahead and make your point, Sean. Well, I was going to say, one of the other things they really use very differently in this movie is I'm glad you mentioned music because obviously a big part of this whole trilogy is the scoring of Italian composer Ennio Morricone. Um, And it's the fact that in a lot of other movies, if you watch it, part of, um, shall we say, the vocabulary is the fact that the music is there to tell you something about the characters. Um, It's there to have really... Some some very bombastic heroic music, um, you know. We, we, you go back and you think about, say, you're watching the first Superman movie, and you imagine watching that without that. I believe, help me out here. Is it John Williams or Hans Zimmer did the first Superman? I theme? believe Superman was John Williams. Okay. Um, yeah, you, you imagine it without that John Williams theme, or or uh, Tim Burton's Batman without that famous, um, would you believe I actually almost just said Danny Ainge score? (laughs) 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 Not only is he a legendary Boston Celtic, but the man composes a mean mean operatic theme to a superhero movie. Um, uh, Danny Elfman, I'm sorry. Um, the great Danny Elfman score of the first two Batman movies, or even some of the more foreboding moments of the Lord of the Rings score. 
This doesn't have that because you don't have particularly a main character who's so clearly, almost insultingly defined. No, in many ways, the man with no name uh, is the hitchhiker, you know, or the watcher. Yeah, he's an inte- obviously he's an integral uh, character, and he's a, you know, and he's slightly more, he slightly do more than I, either of those two. But you know, in the in the first movie, A Fistful of Dollars, and each one of these movies has a distinctly different plot to it. But you know, in the first one, he's uh, he's trying to make money off of these two warring factions in a t- in a town. And so he's playing them against each other. And, you know, once he sort of gets that in motion, um, it's the war between these two families that becomes the focus of the movie. And so it would have been ridiculous to sort of give him his own Darth Vader score because he's sort of ancillary to the bigger story. Yeah, he uh, he really is. And, you know, I, I want to apologize for our manic expression audience. You have to remember, we've been doing this for a while now, primarily on a site that is known for its following of professional wrestling fans. So often the way we get some things across is we make comparisons to great moments in wrestling. Um, A lot of this is a lot like the way sometimes in wrestling you will turn a wrestler from heel to face. Stone Cold Steve Austin sticks out most in my mind, not because they have some major change of personality, but because they're doing the same things they've always done, but doing it to guys the audience hates. Right. Um, It's not like Eastwood here is taking good people and stirring something up between them that wasn't there previously. No, these lowlifes hated themselves in the first place. All Eastwood did is found a way to benefit himself from it. You know, he found a way to bring himself on top by just continuing to string this out and string this out. He's one of the the few true neutral characters I've seen in a movie, to coin to D&D term. Yeah, he's he's not doing good things. He's not doing these things out of a desire to do good. He's doing it because the longer he strings this out and the more plays he can devise, the more he stands to profit from it as people who were awful, awful people in the first place just start slowly but surely canceling themselves out. One of the criticisms of the entire trilogy, but um, starting with this one, is the focus on violence. Uh, just for for its time, graphic violence, the amount of death. Now, if you look and see... You know, movies that would come out in the 80s, the Rambo movies um, as such, you know, and if you look at the amount of death that occurs in the modern action movie, especially when it's rated R, um, it's it's laughably cute that people got upset about this trilogy. But at the, before its time, these were highly criticized because of their uh, because of the way they displayed violence. I mean, people being gunned down. Um, you know, one of the opening scenes of the movie is Clint Eastwood and sort of showing what his superpower is, essentially, is he guns down four people right in the, you know, right in the first scene of the movie. Well, well, yes, he does, but you have to keep in mind why the outrage, and that was the fact that in movies up to that point, number one, yes, the violence was highly cartoony, it was high, it, it was almost to the point of being silly. Um, it was... It was over the top, and it was always between 
good, yay, evil, boo. Um, and, and you had the fact that ultimately, in the end, you had the theme driven home that good was punishing evil and was doing so quite righteously. In this movie, in theaters, and I will qualify that in just a moment, um, you didn't have that. You just had an already bad guy who was watch, who was watching and, in fact, instigating violence going down between two gangs. It was evil gunning. It was, you know, a war of attrition between evil versus evil versus slightly less evil. Um, so that was probably what part of the biggest deal was. But even and on the, a more intimate note, not until Reservoir Dogs do you see somebody, you know, a particular character so viciously beaten. I mean, they do right. a number on Clint Eastwood, and like I said, it isn't until Reservoir Dogs where they try to cut off the uh, the cop's ear, Mr. Blonde does, that you see something that personal and graphic. Well, well, right, and that's the other fact that, you know, Leonie wasn't setting out to make your typical John Ford Western. He wasn't setting out to make a John Wayne Western wherein John winds up and throws a right, a right cross and the guy goes sailing 15 feet across the room like he's just been shot out of a damn cannon. Um, he was making something that was much more grounded. Um, you have to look at it as being, and John, maybe I'm making a bad comparison here, but I'm going to make it anyway. Um, you have to look at it as the earlier Westerns being the Adam West, Burt Ward, Batman, or even the Joel Schumacher Batman in terms of its campiness, in terms of its fun, in terms of its humor. And then you almost kind of look at this as being someone like Christopher Nolan coming in and saying, let's ground this a little bit and focus on that. So much so that, an interesting little note, um, when this film came to American broadcast television audiences, somebody somewhere felt that all the violence needed to have that moral justification to make it appropriate for American audiences. A lot of you will recall I addressed something like this previously when I talked about how the ending of the novel A Clockwork Orange was changed between British and American audiences. Um, this is also something that we talked about with Toby the Demon and the Joker in Does a Character Need Motivation? And I think the conclusion that we came to is not always. Well, okay. apparently for American audiences, you you need motivation if you're the good guy. Well, okay, however, when this came to ABC's, when it came down to ABC's television debut, executives had a four-and-a-half-minute prologue shot and edited into this film wherein Harry Dean Stanton played an unidentified Old West official who essentially hires the man with no name, grants him a pardon for his past for his past crimes if he will mosey into San Miguel and take out the two gangs. Eastwood was not a part of this. He did not portray his portray his character. And this is actually in the special edition DVD and some of the Blu-ray releases. So... And just, just hearing that, from, I mean, I know the notes that you're getting that from, and I'll tell you, having watched the movie without that, hearing that that exists, 
to me is change is like changing who shot first in the you know in the Han Solo Greedo scene. You I think you, you you wreck the movie by doing that. You know that, that that's even better. That's actually much better. I think in this case, that at least it's more understandable than my Clockwork Orange comparison. But yeah, it, it does. It, if you see it with that, it really takes away a great because, deal of intrigue about this character. Because the the appeal of Joe and and he, and it's the same character in, in all three of these movies with different nicknames. So he's Joe, Manko, and Blondie, with Blondie being my absolute favorite. But um, this is some of the gayest nicknames I've ever heard in my life. The, 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 uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it's Blondie versus Angel Eyes. These dudes are <laughs> shooting each other in the face, okay? <laughs> but well, well, it's Blondie know, and Angel Eyes, the Rougeau brothers. Wait a second, Manko at least makes sense. No, no, I'm fine with Joe and Manko. I, by the time we get to Blondie and Angel Eyes, I'm just like, really? Were you was, for, for release in San Francisco? I don't understand what's happening here. <laughs> in any case, um, these the, a fistful of dollars is much more appealing when um, when Eastwood is left as he was written as a true neutral mercenary, essentially a bounty hunter, somebody who's there to make a quick buck of a situation that was easily manipulated. Though I will tell you this, while I enjoyed A Fistful of Dollars, uh, For a Few Dollars More is my all-time favorite of all three. It was the one whose plot I was most um, engulfed in. It was the one where uh, the uh, bringing in, uh, what, what's his name, um, Van Cleef. Yeah, Lee yep. Van Cleef. I love his portrayal of, um, of the bounty more. hunter. Yep. Uh, I, enjoyed the, I enjoyed the story. Um the the face off between the two of them mid movie with a shooting each other's hat, I think is probably one of the one of the visually one of the greatest scenes in, in movies that I've ever watched, and it was, the whole thing was a real a real joy for me. Um, so we can transition into that. Just if you have any last words on uh, fistful of dollars, now would be the time. But I, I want to get into for a few dollars more. I do because one of the, and it's it's some praise for Clint Eastwood here and why he is one of my all time favorite actors, and this is also why you don't see many westerns made nowadays. And again, something I'll qualify in a moment. I'm coming back around to that. It's the fact that what Eastwood lent to every role in his prime, especially when he was playing Harry Callahan, and especially in these movies, authenticity. It was the fact that he had the poise, the physicality, the presence, the willingness to get really hands-on with these roles that actually made you lose yourself in his performance and kind of forget that it was a movie. It's something that a lot of the great action stars of that era had and that very few have today. Um, I think of Lee Marvin. I think of Charles Bronson, I think of Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, Bruce Lee, Sean Connery, guys like that, guys who were just naturally convincing. And they had to be because these were in the days before you had wire work. These were in the days before you could depend on stuntmen to come in and take an absolute pounding while you went off and sipped the latte. But I would I would I would also tell you that part of why the character works so well is because 
while Eastwood does plenty and he does a lot of murdering, which is good, this all he also does something and, and it's a it's a running theme with me in terms of acting is he knows how to stay still in front of the camera. You know, I there are tight shots around his face where he's actually thinking and scheming and planning. And he's conveying that with a few facial uh, movements and, you know, and chewing on the cigar. And that's it. And it's a lost art today because I don't think a lot of today's actors really know how to stay still in front of a camera and sort of show you what's going on with, you know, with a less is more presence. Well, see, but the thing is, is as far as the close-ups go, Leone used the close-ups very differently. Up to that point, and even now, you use close-ups for long reaction shots. He used them at those points to keep attention on that one character, to keep it totally 100% fixed on them. And it was brilliant that way. But the thing is, is nowadays, I, yeah, you mentioned that a lot. That that's a long start nowadays, and that's very true. And that's because nowadays, a lot of your action stars do not have that kind of commitment to that sort of authenticity, to that genuine article approach to it. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a failure on both ends. It's a failure for the actors um, who believe that acting is doing stuff in front of a camera, but it's also a failure of direction. If a director doesn't know how to you know, bridle their horse, essentially, and get it to do what it needs to do, then you know, what you get is, I'm going to keep going back to this particular reference because to me it, it says it all, then you have Transformers, and you have the one... Who's the kid in Transformers? Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, you, you get Shia LaBeouf in Transformers. It's not his fault that you know the, the, both the direction and his acting are terrible. That, that, you know, it, it, was, it was kind of you know, two trains colliding on the same track. And you know what? Nowadays, if I had to narrow it down to the actors who can really... Who I think you could drop them right in the middle of this period, and they would fit right in with the style of filmmaking and with the vocabulary of the action star at that time. Honestly, the only ones I can come up with off the top of my head who could do it, Dwayne Johnson, Jason Statham, Hugh Jackman, Daniel Craig. And you see, and then I start getting a little bit... Oh, and I would throw Liam Neeson in there, too. Liam Neeson I don't know. I thought Viggo really... Mortensen does a, does a uh, good job. Yeah, you know what? I would. Uh, Vigo hasn't done as many action movies, but I guess I would possibly. He's Aragorn. Possibly... That's the end of the discussion. Right. It's just <laughs> that the other guys have, I think, done it a little bit more. No, Aragorn. Aragorn. <laughs> I no. Just hear me out. I, I'm granting you Aragorn, but I'm also throwing in that doing Aragorn over that many movies doesn't. I don't know if it stacks necessarily up to uh, what Jason Statham has done over all of his movies, especially when you consider that the first Transporter movie was about 99.9% practical effects, and Jason doing a lot of his own driving, a lot of his a lot of his own stunts. Same kind of deal with Hugh Jackman in the X-Men movies. Same thing with notoriously with Daniel Craig in a lot of Bond movies, including fighting on top of a goddamn moving train. Um, yes, by the way, that actually was Daniel doing a lot of, doing a lot of, if not all of those shots. So to take, so uh, to take it back to where we started with this, what, what, what makes the movies an interesting visual experience, and let's remember that's what movies are supposed to be, visual experiences, is that 
Eastwood is able to hang out in a in a frame in a scene, not necessarily be doing anything actiony, but still be interesting. Oh, you know? you're absolutely gripped by it. You are just you're hanging on every twitch of his face. It um you know we talked about this with Paranormal Activities. It's one of the things that I think is very successful throughout all of these movies. And you know I think someone with attention deficit disorder might say no, that's boring. Um, but I think if you're a film person and if you've got some degree of uh, of an attention span, these movies play very, very well with tension in a scene. These long shots, these these um, uh, and 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 we'll we'll get into this with a few dollars uh, with uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The opening scene where Van Cleef is uh, questioning, I think a Confederate, an ex-Confederate soldier. And it plays a lot like uh, like a Tarantino, um, like the opening scene for um, 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 uh, something Bastards. Inglorious Bastards. Thank you, Inglorious Bastards, where you have this conversation between you know the father who's hiding the family underneath the floorboards and uh, and the germ and the German soldier and you know they just have this long drawn out scene and then they finally do the big reveal and oh my god he's of course that's why this is happening he's hiding these people um, that whole bit there where you know where Van Cleef walks in he's you know just kind of makes himself at home and they're talking and he's eating bread and eating soup and and the guy knows he's done for and he's trying to talk his way out of it but the, the road to getting you there was just chock full of tension. And uh, you, you see the same thing in A Fistful of Dollars, uh, sorry, for a few dollars more, well, really all three of them, where uh, Sergio Leone really you know, takes his time with a lot of the shots and allows tension to build so that you know, that's what's keeping you in, entertained in, uh, and, and retained in the movie, not just you know, horses blowing up and you know, cowboys doing kung fu fighting and everyone's a ninja. Oh, well, I mean, well put, and actually so well put that I can't that I can't put it much better. And honestly, yeah, Eastwood and Van Cleef are just and all mad- without the advent of a giant robotic spider. I'm oh, sorry. Please continue. Why for you bring up the spider? <laughs> because Aragorn. That's why. No, please continue. Ozzy line of ants. Anyway. <laughs> If Woody had gone to the police, this would have never have happened. Look, get to your point. <laughs> the other point being, um, getting into the actual characters, though, uh, I like the fact that in this movie you have Manco, as I'll refer to him, as he's referred to as in the movie, because it means one-armed in Spanish, and... Uh, you'll notice that Eastwood is so committed to this that he actually makes all of his gestures with just one hand so he can have his other hand constantly free to draw his gun if necessary. Character. Understanding your character. Um, is in Colonel Douglas Mortimer, you have somebody who is able to actually confront Manco with a bit of a moral compass. Because while Mortimer is also hunting Indio for the sake of having the bounty, as you know, Mortimer is a bounty hunter himself, he's also seeking revenge for Indio's raping of 
Roy, was it his sister or his wife? I'm his sister. His sister, yes. Yeah. So like I said, I'm mildly delirious and forgetting plot points here. Um, for the uh, for the rape of his sister, and you can see over the course of it that it actually does start to kind of get the Monko a little bit and really change him a little. What 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 was it, what was your take on the impression of the dynamic between? Van Cleef and Eastwood as their characters, Mongo and Colonel Mortimer. Uh, Van Cleef brings to the Dollars trilogy something that was sorely missing in uh, A Fistful of Dollars, in that somebody is that, and, and then just um, is 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 really really exemplified in the Tuco character uh, in The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, <clears throat> and that is. Well, I I said before, in the first movie, Eastwood is almost an ancillary character as he sets this whole world on fire. Um, Without that counterbalance, without, you know, the the general Zod, without the, you know, without the Joker there to to kind of do something, uh, to to be his equal, he's just kind of there, you know, watching the world burn around him. Um, What was great about the Van Cleef character, uh, Colonel Mortimer, was that finally Eastwood had somebody in this movie that was his equal. Um, and I think this is best shown in one scene where uh, the, the plot line of uh, for a few dollars more is essentially Eastwood and Van Cleef are both bounty hunters, and they're going after the same bounty, um, one for revenge and one for, for cash. Uh, that's what he. That's what Sean was alluding to in uh, Van Cleef wanting to take down Indio because Indio raped his uh, sister, and of course that, that, that's not revealed till much later on in the movie. In any case, um, so the, the, as you get to know these characters, you know they're going after different bounties and they keep running into each other, and finally there's this bit where they confront each other in the street and. They don't want to kill each other, but it's it's, it's essentially it's a, it's a it's a big penis contest, and the way that they execute this big penis contest is hilarious. Clint Eastwood shoots at him, but he does it where he's like shooting at he's shooting at his he shoots his hat off his head. Eastwood shoots Van Cleef's hat off of his head, and then when he goes to pick it up, he shoots it again, knocking it you know further down the road, as if to say, "Get out of my town." And then he runs out of bullets. So now it's Van Cleef's turn. And Van Cleef proceeds to shoot in the most cartoony thing in this entire series of movies. He shoots his hat off of his head and then repeatedly does it. So the hat just just flips up and up and up and up and up. And finally they run out of bullets and realize that uh, they, 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 they cancel each other out. So they should probably sit down and work out a plan to work together. I thought that was brilliant. And one of the best things I've seen in a movie in a long time. You know, we should also say something about Indio here that I think really gets lost. Well, I, I, yeah, I actually won't want... There was something I wanted to say about him, because I'm not sure which direction you're going in, but I wanted to say this. Uh, the character, the actor who plays Indio um, is also in A Fistful of Dollars, and he plays another... Which is which good that this kind of grated on my nerves, but yeah, Jean-Marie uh, Maria Volante... Um, plays the villain in the first movie, and then he plays the villain in, the, in uh, El Indio in the second movie, and then does not appear in the third movie. He looks like Tuco, but he's not, he's not the guy. Um, right. In any case, 
what I he I, I didn't find the villain to be particularly interesting in the first movie. I thought the plot of it was interesting, but but the actual characters themselves were a little too D for my taste. This movie in particular, more so than the other two, has a has a villain that is equal to the the two heroes in terms of depth and interest. I've never seen a movie spend so much time on a backstory and motivation for a villain where you don't necessarily feel sorry for him because he's doing something horrible and dastardly. I mean, to set this up, he rapes a woman, like on her wedding night or something, and you know he, he, he shoots the husband or the lover, and then he proceeds to rape her, and as he's raping her, she commits suicide via gunshot. To the point where he is forever haunted by this. And that's a big motivating factor in his behavior and uh, you know, his exchanges with characters in, in the present day in the movie. And I found that to be very gripping. And one of the few instances in Hollywood where I thought that a lot of care was taken to uh, give you a villain that was three-dimensional but still evil without being Skeletor. And at that point... In these kinds of movies, that was really unheard of because, you know, again, it's it's Leone reinventing the Western and really approaching it from a more realistic human perspective and really re- trying his best to round everybody out as much as he can. Well, that's that's a that's a point that I really want to hammer here. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to toss the mic back to you in just a second, but I want to say this for the audience: it is very important for people to understand that bad guys are people too. And the problem with a lot of movies today is that that seems that what I just said seems to have fallen on deaf ears if people even know, know it at all. Is that many times the villains are cast as you know Dick Dastardly tying the damsel to uh, in distress to a train track while twisting a mustache, and that is the extent. You know they may be given motivations for the sake of plot, but that's all there is to them. It's very rare now that they're actually painted as real people with backstories and, and real motivations and depth. So this was a rare treat, and it's, not, and it's one that I wish we saw more of in modern films. It, it is a treat. And, you know, we see modern films that I think try to pull it off. They, they kind of sort of try. Any more nowadays, I think they're the version of trying to pull it off is kind of the Ocean's Eleven style. Um, to where we have criminals, but they're charming criminals. They're, they're funny and always winking at the camera. Um, it's never somebody who's really quite this well, this well fleshed out. Um, it's one of those where as you're watching it, it it's really hard to root for anybody any one person in these movies, you just kind of sit there just kind of raptly in tuned to wondering how it's going to play out. Yeah. This was, this was not your typical uh, football game, American-style movie, where there's a white hat and a black hat, and, <coughs> excuse me, and you cheer for your team. This was better. This was you're watching a movie and you're seeing how it plays out. 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's it's like being a Vikings fan and watching a Bears-Packers game. <laughs> you talk football, me no understand. I know those are teams. <laughs> Come on, I have to throw in a couple of layers here every now and then. Indeed, indeed. We can't be all pro wrestling all the time. Um, right. But, yeah, so <clears throat> that's the, the extent of... Uh, for a few dollars more, there are you know there are some really really good gunfights. It's, it's by far my favorite of the. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed the plot. You know I like a nice I, I like a nice chase movie, um, a nice detective story, and that's what it was. It was these two bounty hunters uh, going after this really really powerful villain, and Clint Eastwood has to infiltrate the gang, and you know and then and boy, and if you like the beating Clint Eastwood got in the first movie, they double your pleasure while they beat both of these guys nearly to death. And then it all resolves itself in the end with uh with the gunfight and all the and all of that. And you know, and Clint Eastwood's cheeky thing with the uh stopwatch. But I wanted to make sure we had plenty of time to talk about the three hour long epic. <laughs> the conclusion uh-huh. to to the Dollars the Man with No Name trilogy, the good, the bad and the ugly, which uh doing a little bit of research before the show uh, rumor has it that this was actually a prequel. This was the sort of backstory of um, Clint Eastwood's character prior to Fistful of Dollars. And I'll go ahead and kind of throw it to you and uh, I'll let you talk about sort of how this movie came to be and some of your thoughts about it. Well, yeah, what we've got in what we've got in this movie, and actually it's, it's really complicated to really know where to begin the thoughts on it. Um, what you've got is really... Again, in this movie, once more, you've got a three-way showdown. You have got Clint Eastwood as Blondie, who is the good. He's a bounty hunter who is briefly partnered with Zuko and Angel Eyes, both, as they're searching for Barry Gold. Um, situation where Zuko knows where knows where to find where to find it. Blondie knows which great which grave to look at. Um, that's kind of that's kind of the extent of their partnership throughout it. Lee Van Cleef is, as you mentioned before, he's Angel Eyes, which I have to agree with you that that just might be the worst damn Western dame in the history of bad Western dames. It's right up there with Mr. Pink. Yeah, except that kind of makes sense because Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> um, he is the bad. Um, he is a the, a murderous, murderous mercenary. That's that's pretty much his pretty much his lot in life. Um, he comes into this when Blondie and Tuco have been posing as Confederate Confederate soldiers. He's a Union the Union sergeant. He goes to town torturing torturing Tuco. Along the way, Angel Eyes eventually learns the name of the name of the cemetery they're seeking, but he doesn't know the grave they're they're looking for. So he forms this uneasy accord with Blondie. Uh, however, he kind of ends up be, ends up being, you know, turned on eventually. So what ends up happening is another another bounty hunter attempts to kill Tuco. And uh, Tuco shoots him. Clint Eastwood goes looking for him, 
and realizes that he's better off with Tuco than he is <coughs> excuse me than he is with Angel Eyes. So the two of them repartner up and uh, take out Tuco, uh, take out Angel Eyes's gang. And then it's a race between Angel Eyes and Tuco and Eastwood to the cemetery. I want to I want to spend some time talking actually about Tuco because what the good the bad and the ugly does effectively is goes back it goes back to the first movie in that Clint Eastwood again is sort of this instigator character you know in a world where he kind of manipulates the pieces and then watches as everything burns but he has a sidekick in this movie who kind of goes back and forth between being the sidekick and being an antagonist but I what I found interesting was you know you know no more about Clint Eastwood in this movie than you did in, in the either two, and they spend and they don't really and in this movie Van Cleef's the villain and they don't really spend a tremendous amount of time on him either. He's just kind of there doing bad guy stuff. Um, the person that they spend the most amount of time with, the person who's got the more the most interesting backstory in the movie, the person who you get to know as the character is Tuco. Mm-hmm. Which is weird because he's this really, really great amalgamation of sort of a violent character, but he's also a clown and a buffoon. And uh, there's a there's this long, drawn out scene where he's torturing basically Clint Eastwood. He's making him walk, through, doing doing a death walk in the desert, and he's 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 sadistic, and he's cruel. And the only reason why Clint Eastwood lives through you know through, to see another day is because an opportunity arises to go after this gold, and he suddenly realizes he needs Clint Eastwood. <laughs> On the other hand, and now you're thinking, well, how is that a sympathetic character? Well, then you start to hear his backstory about how, about where he grew up and how he had the one brother who becomes a monk, um, and he chose to be a bandit, and you, know, and, and you really get to know him. And it's one of the few things I've ever seen in a movie where they spend this much time on the sidekick. Someone who essentially is not an integral part of the story. I mean, I, I, I just what was your reaction to that about how the movie? This was Tuco's movie. Clint Eastwood and, and Van Cleef just went along for the ride. It, it was an interesting choice because I mean, Eli Wallach was chosen for this role in part because he he has some comic ability, as as he demonstrated in How the West Was Won, and. And yet, despite that, this never really devolves into a comedy. I mean, he, he's very he's very funny, obviously, but it was an interesting it was an interesting choice to kind of take the movie away from Eastwood and Van Cleef, who were such proven stellar performers in the first movie, and really sometimes almost feel underutilized in this one. Um. And yet, and yet it works. Yeah, it it, it really works. And I, I think it's in part because the two the two historically, meaning Leone and Wallach, got along really well during during shooting. Um, and apparently, um, so much so that Eastwood and Van Cleef, I think, kind of realize just just how fascinated Leone was with the Tuco character. And they just kind of, you know, maintained their parts and still kind of gave kind of gave their all to him and getting into him, but really 
step back and kind of let Wallach shine there. Um, Here's a question. Here's a question. I, okay, go ahead and finish your point, but I have a question when you're done. I was just going to say, it's, it's, it's interesting, to, to say the very, very least. So. I got to watch the um, the full version. Apparently, there were a lot of deleted scenes that were put back into the uh, <coughs> excuse me the DVD and the Blu-ray version. Um, so I don't know what the original running time was, but the version I saw was, you know, just hits three hours, yeah. which there's a lot of time spent on um, these really, really long scenes where you, you you think not much is happening, but it's actually telling you a lot about the character. For example, um, early on in the movie, uh, you're shown that Blondie and Tuco are partnered up together and they're running a scam, basically, where uh, Eastwood turns him into in for a bounty and then rescues him by shooting the noose. And they... Re- and they repeat this, and and then, and then that, and then much like a song, like a really well done song, that comes up again at the very end of the movie. But uh, they they run this gag until basically Eastwood loses his patience with him, and then just deserts him. Um, which is why later on he'll go back and do the same thing to Eastwood and be really really cruel about it. So, no, no neither guy is an angel in this movie. Only Angel Eyes is an angel. No, just kidding. But. There's a bit where he's sort of pulling himself out of the predicament that Eastwood left him in, and he's kind of and he's got to rebuild. And so the first thing he does is, he you know he waltzes into a gun shop, which the the, the whole scene, the interaction with him and the in the gun store owner again. This is an example of tension. You know the gun store owner is going to get it. How he's going to get it and when he's going to get it though are mysteries. So there's this whole long elaborate drawn out maybe uh scene where <clears throat> Tugo is trying to buy a gun and he's using different par- and he's trying to build the perfect gun out of different pieces of guns and then he goes and he shoots it to test it out and he's making and he keeps taking the whiskey from the gun store owner mind you the guns the, the gun shop is closed and he just waltzes in anyway um he's bullying the shopkeeper and finally, at the end of it, it's the old George Carlin joke. You know, you ever walk into a gun place, uh, ask to buy a gun, and then ask the gun owner if he's got any bullets in a ski mask. Um, kind of the same thing here. At the end of it, he's like, how much? And the gun store owner says, well, it's $20. He goes, no. And he shoves the gun in his face. How much? Oh. And proceeds to then ro- rob him. <laughs> you know? But it was a great telling scene. It was an exceptionally long scene. And I'm going to step out of my role as a movie snob and uh, you know, fetishizer of movies 30 and 20 years old and ask you this question, Sean. It was all leading up to this question. Sure. In its three-hour form, does the movie suffer from a lack of editing or is it an example maybe of how movies should be if directors actually took their time with, uh, with the shots? You know, honestly, I think it demonstrates that you can have a three-hour movie, even a three-hour Western, which for me is it's a long time for a Western because, as I said before, it's not necessarily my favorite genre. But I think that if you take your time and you pace yourself well and you keep the scenes interesting enough and you really keep the filler down, you can do it without your movie having to be the Lord of the Rings. It it can be done. I don't think it suffers from a lack of editing. 
Um, I think it, it's almost like a case wherein they had so much great stuff that they shot, but I could see how it would be really hard in the cutting room to really take anything out, to really see anything as being terribly unnecessary, especially, as I said before, with how much development time they really give Tuco throughout the I, whole thing. There's a lot of complaints about directors like Quentin Tarantino who – you know, the, the complaints are essentially people feel like their movies are masturbatory in nature in the sense that you have this director just throwing stuff on the screen and doing these exceptionally long scenes and, and that are unnecessary. And my rule of thumb is this. There is nothing unnecessary in a movie unless it really doesn't need to be there. In other words, you can have a scene that's all dialogue, one head, one head talking to another head, if that scene accomplishes something. If at the end of that scene you are taken to the next logical place in the movie or they have or they have revealed something uh important in the movie then uh you keep it. You know there I just watched the how I met your mother last night and there's uh there's a bit where they're packing for Italy. And so um they have a box marked triangle and a box marked Italy and uh triangle was a joke about how anything they put in the street disappeared five seconds later so um you know in terms of editing if it tells you something that you need to know in the movie or takes you to the next logical place italy if it doesn't and it's just there to you know because you feel like stroking yourself off then it'll then triangle and i that's the reason that's the reason why i asked you this did you feel like there was anything in this movie that needed to be in the triangle box um that was maybe an example of Sergio Leone just kind of, you know, masturbating himself on the screen. You know, I, I really didn't. And my and my thought on that when it comes to directors is, you know, and this is going to sound so odd since movies are obviously a business, but ultimately a lot of directors seek to make the movies that they want to make that satisfy them personally and just hope for the best that it happens to find an audience. And that's the thing about uh, about Tarantino. He's obviously, yes, you know what, in that sense, yes, okay, he is masturbatory. He's not making the movies for the movie for audiences. He's making them because he loves these kind these kinds of movies. And it just so happens that a lot of people do too. And that's the point where where it comes down to, you know what? If you don't like it, if you don't feel like it was made to please your interests, go fucking watch something else. <laughs> but because, I think the question, because, because the question more revolves around the, the the idea of are they throwing things up there that are unnecessary or, or aren't they? And I felt like that ultimately where I came to on uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly was if you have patience and you let and you wait to see it all play out. It all makes sense, and it, and it was all necessary. I thought it all added to the movie. No, it, it did all add to it. And despite the fact that Leone, according to Eastwood, was notoriously a, a real perfectionist, um, he liked to get a lot of angles on his scenes, was, was very detail-oriented. So in that case, yeah, it kind of makes sense that eventually we would get a, an actual you know, insane three-hour epic of a movie. Um, but really, he remade the Western in his image. Uh, he wasn't making this necessarily 
for audiences per se. He was motivated by the impression that Westerns had grown stale. I think he agreed with that. But, you know... Well, but you know, I, I look at it. I look at it from my own perspective of you know what I say at the, always at the end of this podcast and always at the end of every column. Never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. I got to think that if you sat there and you asked and you said that for the rest of his career you wanted Quentin Tarantino to make movies in the style of Michael Bay, I think Tarantino would off himself on the spot. <laughs> and rightly so. Right, exactly, because you know that that works for Michael Bay. Michael likes making movies that way, in no small part, because they make metric obscene fuck tons of money. Yep. Um, but also because he just genuinely seems to enjoy making those movies. Look, there's an audience for classical music, and there's an audience for disco. And if, if and if Michael Bay can be described as anything, it is the movie equivalent of disco. So let me ask you. Let, let let's talk about setting. That the first two movies, you made it a point of saying, you know, this was an opportunity to show the West how it really was. Yeah. And the first two movies do a very good job of that. You don't necessarily know what what point in the West they are. It's just it's the West, and this is a a gritty, realistic portrayal of life in the frontier. Okay, great. What makes the good, the bad, and the ugly very, very special, in my opinion, is it's not just the West in this movie. It's the Civil War. And and he does, and Sergio Leone made it a point to say that he wanted to show the absurdity of war in the movie, but I felt that it was an interesting, uh, I guess, a juxtaposition of sh- showing the West against the backdrop of a war happening around them. Because... In the first two movies, you have a very, very tight shot, basically, of Clint Eastwood in a, in a one particular setting in the West. This is this is the wider world, um, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that, on how that was portrayed, and you know, and what in did you get what he was saying about war, and how did that work in the overall story for you? My first thought is when you talk about Italians trying to pick the pick periods of American history, like the Civil War. The first movie I remember ever watching is Mandinga. <laughs> oh, uh, the one and hopefully only time an Italian has ever been allowed to make a movie about what they think happened during slavery. <laughs> All right. Oh, God, makes me wish Lambert and I were still doing Bad Movie Review Club. I'd love the subjective to that. Oh, <laughs> uh, he, he, hey, he would be begging me to watch Tim and Eric's billion-dollar movie again. <laughs> I missed the Man Movie Review Club, but uh, we'll have to address that at a separate time. Um, Back to the Civil War. You know, really, I thought it was fine. I really didn't think much uh, much about it at the time, to be perfectly honest. Um, but... If that's somebody's outside perspective of it, I think that's very interesting, considering how how solemnly Americans always view the Civil War. Um, it's it's always something to be kind of kind of treated as serious business. Um, I don't think it was dismissed. I think you know, look, much of the movies that came out in the seventies were you know to show the absurdity of war, but the war they were talking about was Vietnam. Hmm. <clears throat> the idea that a lot of artists have is, you know, and they would be right, is war is hell. War is yeah. destructive. War is uh, an execution 
of you know politics by other means. I, I know I just mangled that phrase, but the the point of it is is that war, whether it's in the seventies or the eighteen hundreds or wherever, very, you very seldom get to see how that affects. Uh, the real people on the ground. You're always shown, you know, the soldier's perspective. You're cer- you're certainly shown sort of how it affects greater world events, but you're never really allowed to spend a lot of time with the with the very with the tiny people having to live in the world that's currently blowing up around them. Mm. That's what I thought was very interesting about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Was here you have three bounty hunters doing bounty hunter things. But in this period of time, they also have to contend with two warring armies going at one another around them. And they know and they, they owe no allegiances. They have no they, they have no stake, but they have no stake in the game. But by the same token, they have to be aware of what's happening. And I think the scenes where Van Cleef sort of in, uh, insinuates himself into the Union Army, when Tuco and uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, Blondie, insinuate themselves into the Confederate Army, and you know, they're having to play with these things. The whole sequence that leads up to them blowing up the bridge, and the, and then the lingering effect that, that has <clears throat> on Clint Eastwood as he uh, gives Tuco a head start because he wants to. And the one instance, in, and there's always one in every one of these movies, and the one instance where Clint Eastwood shows a bit of humanity, you know, he tends to a wounded soldier. Um, you know, it's sort of the one thing that you can point to and say, ah, see, he's a good guy. Um, I think those are all very, very interesting. And again, not something you get to see in, in movies about war. You, you'll, you can sometimes get that sense from the main characters involved, you know, something like a Pearl Harbor you know, I, you know, or, or Saving Private Ryan. You get to see how the war is affecting those individuals. But um, but the people not necessarily directly involved in the war, people that are not soldiers, I thought it was interesting to see how it affected them and how they had to adapt around it. Uh, it was a very, very, I think, significant obstacle that they had to deal with and one that kept coming up again and again through the movie. See, and that makes me really want to go back and watch it again because actually that's a good point that uh that I hadn't really that I hadn't really thought of very much. So I mean, there you have it, a movie like this. I mean, that's that's the beauty of some of these movies is the fact that you can watch them a million times and then you know, if you're talking with somebody else who's really fascinated by it and you really get into a good discussion like this, sometimes something gets pointed out and it just kind of makes you see it in a completely different, either positive or, or sometimes even in a little bit of a negative light. And I think we'll see that a little bit more with some of the other franchises we're going to be talking about soon. But in this case, that's a, that's a different look at it. I, I would be interested to go back and kind of watch all three hours of that again just looking at it patiently and strictly um, from the frame of looking at it as the impact of the Civil War on the people who are outside of it, who who aren't fighting in it directly. Uh, The other thing that fascinated me about sort of an Italian's perspective on the war is there's no mention of slavery. There's no mention of states' rights. 
There's no mention of the politics that drove the war in the first place. There's no Lincoln. There's no nothing. So what you get is, I don't know why we're fighting. I just know that we're supposed to fight. And it's the perspective of the soldier who doesn't understand what the war is about, only that they have to fight, which I I really found fascinating. Well, you you said it yourself. Leone was talking about the absurdity of it, how it it never involves a good cause in in his eyes. I think it. I think that gets lost on people. I think, and I don't. And I don't want to get off on a whole political rant here, but I think that even soldiers in you know in in, mo- in the modern war on terror, because if you've ever actually sat, sat and talked with some of these guys, and I've have, I've had plenty of friends in the military. I've had plenty of friends who came back from the Iraq invasion and all of that, and you know, I and in my work now, there's plenty of soldiers, God bless them, who come back uh, all fucked up, and they end up in jail. So I spend a lot of time talking to soldiers who are incarcerated and my job affords me the ability to get to know them um, as, as people, not just as inmates. And I'll sit there and ask them, I'm like, well, did you think it was worth it? And those, a lot of them, not, not enough that I would say that this, that this someone should take from this uh, a different stance on war or the, or the war on terror or anything. These are, these are, Individual stories, nothing more. But many of them have said to me, I, after a while, I didn't understand why we were there in the first place. Uh, no, I don't think it was worth it. I, I feel like we got thrown into an unwinnable and untenable situation, and to this day, I don't know why we were there. And the thing of it is, is that that is a modern explanation uh, or a sort of modern take on current events. That is echoed from a sixty-year-old movie. When you look at the last, the, that last sequence of events leading up to the blowing up of uh, of the bridge, that then leads our characters to the uh, the graveyard where the gold is. What is the captain saying to Clint Eastwood in his drunken stupor? The guy who wins the war is the one who can, you know, drug and drink his soldiers up. To you know, to die for a cause that no one understands. Yeah. How many people who fought in the Civil War got the states' rights argument? I mean, maybe from a very elementary point of view, you know, someone could, you know, then someone may have said to them, "We're fighting so that the uh, the Yankees don't have to, you know, can't tell us what to do." Okay, but do you really think a lot of them, the vast majority of people they were calling up to serve in the in the Confederate Army, really got the uh, intrinsic politics of the time? And how much of that was, you know, was, we, you know, we like to believe that a lot of it was motivated by slavery, but I guarantee you that 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 that, that slavery in and of itself was not a tremendous was not the thing tremendously uh, on the minds of the soldiers that fought in the damn war. It either went a lot deeper than that, or it only went to one place. This is my duty. I'm in the war. I'm a, I'm a soldier. I have to fight. End of discussion. And it's only upon you know upon its conclusion that people can reflect back on and go, ugh, that was this ne- was this trip really necessary? And well, now you're making me want to go back and watch Ken Burns' The Civil War. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I and I want to um, sort of pick up the levity with this podcast so people don't kind of leave it on a down note since we're drawing to a close, but. I think that's what makes the good, the bad, and the ugly a very special movie to me. Was on the one hand, 
it's 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 you know it's uh, the cannonball run. You know, it's it's three guys running for gold, but it's set against the backdrop of of a war, and the people that they're that that they're focusing on are so far removed from. I mean, I think the whole damn movie takes place. It's supposed to take place in New Mexico. That's not exactly the front lines of Dixie. Okay, this isn't. This wasn't you know Alabama. This wasn't Georgia. You it's all. Mean? It's it's almost like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead in the West. Sure. Your final thoughts on the Dallas trilogy? Why is this? Uh, why is this a, a series of movies that uh, people, even if they don't like westerns, should go out and watch in fifty words or less? Because it's become a movie meme unto itself for how for how distinctive it is among westerns. Because it was Clint Eastwood's breakout into American movie stardom coming out coming out of Rawhide. Because it intentionally, willfully sets itself completely apart from the John Ford era of Hollywood studio system westerns. And just because they are just so damn much fun, even the ungodly three hours, good, the bad, the ugly, which is arguably the weakest movie in the trilogy. It's not bad at all, make no mistake, but it's certainly the weakest of the lot with, for a few dollars more, obviously being being the best. What I would also recommend is, maybe even before you go see these, please, you owe it to yourself, especially if you regard yourself as a film buff, track down Yojimpo. It's not hard. Netflix has it. I don't know if it's available for instant watching, but I know they have it on DVD because that was where I first saw it. Because Kurosawa really is a masterful filmmaker. It's obviously very different because it's made by a Japanese filmmaker and his style as opposed to an Italian one in the more commonplace Italian style. It's set in Japan versus... Spain painted up to look like to look like the West. However, it's a great frame of reference and it's an excellent movie. So by all means, watch all four of them. Make a weekend out of it. Because they're truly unforgettable movie experiences of their time. Last question. Yeah. Again, fifty words or less. Is spaghetti western a derogatory term? Roger Ebert tried to use it as one, but then again, there are a lot of things Roger Ebert has said with which I didn't agree. So, no, I don't think, I don't think it is. It's a genre worth uh, worth your your respect, my respect, and I think the respect of the people listening to this podcast. Yeah, it's you know what, it deserves no more to be a derogatory term than grindhouse should be considered a derogatory term. All right, and that concludes our uh, Man With No Name trilogy podcast, a.k.a. The Dollars Trilogy. Our first look on the long road to ruin at a spaghetti western, any western, really. Um, all right, so let's talk about the, the future. Um, two weeks. Now, the things have been kind of jumbled. <laughs> we had to put off podcasts. We've, we've had some life getting in the way experiences here, but we're, we're, we're somewhat back on track. 
the intention was to do Jurassic Park next, but because of the way that my Netflix uh, account works, it's going to take me a couple of weeks to get all those films back in, especially because it took me so long to watch the Clint Eastwood movies, that um, I need to watch some streaming stuff in between while I gather up these movies and prepare for that podcast. So the answer, of course, was to go back to the horror genre and welcome back on in two weeks Mr. Robert Winfrey as we do a two-part look at the Scream franchise. Yay! Yep. Um, boy, for, for for someone who who doesn't like the horror genre and uh, swore he doesn't didn't want to do any horror, this is now the second one I'm going to tackle in as few as you know in in as many as a few months. So I hope yeah. you're happy, it, Mr. Comer. Kids, I remind you, the whole reason why we're waiting to do Hellraiser until Halloween is because, well, number one, I wanted to do something special for Halloween, and number two, because Mark needed a break right around right around that time. And number three, uh, no way Mark wants to watch all eight Hellraiser movies. <laughs> I don't want to watch eight of anything. But, um, yep, so we're going to do uh, Scream 1 and 2 in two weeks. Let me pull up the calendar here so I get this right, because I always fuck this up, and then you and Robert are yelling at me like, hey, you told us this, and we're doing that. All right, so... The 21st is Scream Part 1, uh, Movies 1 and 2. And then June 4th is uh, <clears throat> June fourth is Screams uh, 3 and 4. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gone the week of June 11th, uh, which, is, which, which would have been our off week anyway. Right, uh, right. So then we'll be back and ready to do Jurassic Park on the 18th. And um, theoretically, and this is what we're we're penciling in, but we may need to move it back a little bit more. But my hope is that um, July 2nd and then July 16th, we are able to do the Twilight series featuring... uh, Yes, sir. Mark, would you... um... Would you mind pulling up your calendar and extrapolating something out for me a little bit? Sure. Let's see. Okay, do we have... Well, actually, may not be a worry. Do we have a show um, on August 6th, or is that an off week for us? Okay, uh, just... Well, if by the way, we I'm, I'm actually off on this. We're going to have... Because we still have to fit in... Uh, the Superman uh, podcast, which I think what, what I'd rather do with the Superman podcast is just is do a two-hour podcast, but hit all four movies, because quite frankly, what does one have to say about three and four? Not enough what for an entirely new podcast. I stand corrected. Never mind my question about August. Um, I was asking because talking to a friend of mine earlier tonight. Hi, Anne. Um, uh, she informed me that she did, in fact, get her ticket to see The Monkees in concert here in Mesa in August. Um, and I wasn't sure if we were going to be having a show while she was in town. But now, never mind, because remembering the schedule that she gave me, I don't think she'll even be in Phoenix by that time. Okay. So I think we're pretty much clear. Um, Hang on, let's go back again. So yeah. um, the 21st is Scream uh, Part 1. June 4th is um, Scream Part 2. Um, June 18th is, 
is when we should be doing the Superman podcast. June 18th should be Superman because that'll fall right around when Man of Steel is coming out. In fact, I'll, I will have just seen it that previous Thursday uh, in the Outer Banks. So we should do June 18th is Superman, and then July 2nd is Jurassic Park. Um, July 16th and then July 30th would then be Twilight. And then I think we're ready for your friend and the uh, the Aliens and Predators uh, series. Oh, yes, that's right. In August, that is that is what we've got coming up. We have got my very good friend, a geek of all seats, of all seasons, overall great guy, published author, paranormal researcher, Jason Offit, um, will be joining us to talk, actually for a good long stretch, about Alien, the Alien Quadrilogy, and then the Predator series, and then I believe we're going to do Alien versus Predator. Okay, and we'll have to figure out if we want to do two-hour shows to incorporate um so, so we can do just do one episode for Aliens, one episode for Predators, and then another episode for Aliens versus Predator, and, and have it be over the course of three shows as opposed to six shows in like three months. I'll tell you, I'm really excited about that Twilight podcast. Are you now? Yeah, excited. I, I'm excited oh. to, you know, I'll tell you what. Um, part of the reason why I wanted to do Twilight, there are two big reasons I wanted to do a Twilight podcast. One was, well, I've not been the world's biggest fan of these movies. I thought they were fine. I thought they were certainly passable. I, I got the fact that it would, you know, I tried to say this on the Michael Medved show, and unfortunately he he, he radioed me, which in radio in, in this uh, sense means when you don't allow the caller to actually explain himself and you just talk over him and then hang up. So I got radioed by, I got radioed by Michael Medved. But I was trying to explain to him when he didn't quite understand what why women were all goo goo you know cuckoo for cocoa puffs over the Twilight movies, and I tried to explain to him that it's Romeo and Juliet that this is that this is fantasy. This is romance fantasy. It doesn't matter that they're vampires. It doesn't matter that they're werewolves. This is true love. Um, that's what it was about. You know, this is Romeo and Juliet told with horror monsters. May, may um, I do my um, may I do my plug good reference works thing that I do seemingly almost every podcast. Hang, give me half a second. Oh, and, sure. Sorry. And because I, I tend to go to 411 Mania um, as sort of a central point for my news, and then I go outward from there, um, throughout the the release of the Twilight movies, all I saw was it being unfairly maligned by horror franchise fans because it happened to have vampires and werewolves <laughs> in it. And it was seemingly didn't, you know, it was like an entire audience of people that didn't seem to understand that, A, this was written for girls, B, that it was a romance story, not a horror story. Yet they were using um, they were using the, the ruler for horror and horror monsters to grade these movies. And, of course, then they come up, uh, they come up short and they're abysmal. That's not, but that's not the right measuring stick. So part of the reason I wanted to do the Twilight series was to, for that audience, give a solid defense of those movies and, you know, and hold, and I mean, like, look, if you, if, if you, if for romance stories, you don't think it measures up, that's fine. That's valid. But, you know, I, I, I feel like Twilight deserves a proper defense in the face of 411 readers peeing on it incessantly that and i wanted my wife on at least one of these podcasts against you know against her will and this was the only one that she would do 
Well, you know, and, and this is the great thing about our little geek community <clears throat> is the fact that unlike over at 411, we can sometimes find communities where you can get a little bit of a balanced discussion about things and really kind of look in-depth and intelligently at them. And it's one of the things that I was very flattered to hear some of the people over at Manic Expression praise us for. Um, so to that end, what I would suggest, and I'm going to do this twice for two different upcoming franchises. First off, before the Twilight franchise, to really get a good, some good intelligent perspectives on it, if I can say one good thing about that guy with the glasses, it's that throughout this entire franchise, almost every reviewer had something different to say about it. It was almost all negative, mind you. <laughs> they approached it in a different way. So my suggestion, <clears throat> if you really want to kind of get a more balanced, even-handed, but still kind of ribbing uh, perspective on this, Go watch the video the Nostalgia Critic recently recently did. Um, was Twilight the worst thing ever? Go watch the uh, the satirical review that Elisa Hansen, Maven of the Eventide, did, um, where she had to pick, uh, <laughs> where she had to find ten positive things to say about the series. Um, uh, Mars Girl also did a great piece on her blog. I forget the URL off the top of my head. But a great piece where she really deconstructed the books. Um, go read up on those. Um, I'm actually making a point to avoid all those coming into this discussion because I want to approach it somewhat fresh. But <clears throat> I want to hear discussion from you guys in the comments. Give us feedback on the Facebook page. Tell us what you think after maybe reading those different perspectives and then fire back at us on what we think. Because we're, we're all about good discussion. Uh, we're, we're not going to flame you. We're not going to tell, tell you you're wrong. But just give it to us straight with what you think. The other thing I would suggest is along the same lines, uh, before we do the Scream podcast, and I suggest this because he's also entertaining, also go to that guy with the glasses and check out Welshie's eight-part Scream retrospective. Uh, he devoted two parts, two videos to each movie. It is really outstanding and done by somebody who's not only a great entertainer, but also has a real, genuine love of horror. He does one of these, one of these big multi-part reviews every year. Uh, currently, uh, he still hasn't finished Saw yet. He started that clear back in 2012. Um... I think later this year he wants to do Halloween. So go check out Scream. That will really get you up on the franchise. And, you know, <clears throat> that's one thing I hope we get out of being at Manic Expression. It seems to be a very positive but active community. We want feedback. We want discussion. If you think we're wrong, do it kindly, but tell us why we're wrong. So at least we can come back and defend, and defend our points. We love the dialogue. We're just like any other brands of geeks. We love to sit around and talk about the stuff that we love and the stuff that we hate. Well, that was kind of the whole point of doing the podcast to start with was an opportunity for me to talk with um, people who were as much into movies as I was and have those. You know, unless, If you go to manic-expressions.com, you'll actually find uh, my Iron Man review that I did with 401's Jeff Harris. Now, Jeff Harris did a written review of Iron Man 3 for uh, 401mania.com. 
and but he graciously offered to do a discussion of the movie via podcast uh, yesterday, which I posted. And I, when I got with Jeff about how the podcast was going to go, I said, Jeff, think about, you know, you, you went to go see this movie with your buddies. And then after the movie, you went to the diner or wherever the hell it is you go in Los Angeles. And, you know, you get, you get, you get yourself a bagel and some coffee and you just talk about the movie for hours. That's what I wanted. And that's kind of what the, the long road to ruin is, is really supposed to be. It's a sort of, you know, it, it's a diner discussion of these movies in detail by people who at least think they know film. Yeah. Right. So that's, uh, that's the game plan. Um, again, I'll go, I'll go over this real quick. Um, uh, the 20, 21st is Scream with Robert Winfrey. The June 4th, Scream Part 2 with Robert Winfrey. Um, June 18th, Superman, one two-hour-long special podcast. We will not be doing Superman Returns. I don't count it. It didn't have Christopher Reeve. The movie sucks. It's more It's more amenable to a bad movie review uh, club entry than it is Long Road to Ruin. Um, so we'll be doing Superman's 1, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, and then um, July 2nd, Jurassic Park. And then finally, um, July 16th and July 30th, it's Twilight's Part 1 and Part 2. And then in between that, you can check out um, my podcast that I do with Robert Cooper. Uh, it's a music-related podcast um, where we, we break down either an album or a band, and we do either a career retrospective or a track-by-track review of the album. Uh, a week from tonight is the, the now twice-delayed uh, review of the new Fin Troll album, uh, Blood's Vat. Sean, anything you want to plug? Just a couple things. Everybody, especially my new Manic Expression friends, as I say every single week, never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. Um, the two main things i got to plug this week. This Sunday, check out 411mania.com's Music Zone for music's three R's, wherein I will tell you in absolutely no uncertain terms why Lauren Hill is not going to get out of nearly a million dollars in unfiled, unpaid taxes <laughs> and should not simply by using the I was born a poor black child excuse. It's Listen, not if it works for Steve problem. Martin, I don't understand why it won't work for Lauren Hill. You know... Tell me you catch that reference. Yeah, I get the reference. <laughs> Believe me, I get the reference. But I left a doozy of a comment on on that article, and I may very well just AJ Gray myself and just copy and paste that right into the column. <laughs> hey, no moderators on this podcast. Uh, be nice. Um, be nice. I'm still playing by the rules. Be nice. I'm under house arrest. I just haven't left the house. <laughs> Anyway, um, by the way, that's my other than the guy who called 911 80 times for Kool-Aid burgers and weed, Lauren Hill not paying her taxes because she's uh, the child of poor black slaves. The most hilarious thing I've seen in the news. Only if she's the only person in known history to be born to a 110 year old woman. (laughs) You're the child of a high school teacher and a computer programmer. You were accepted to Columbia University even if you did leave after a year. You are simply a special kind of stupid. You're racist, John. She's she's black. She whatever cockamamie excuse she comes up with is valid. You know what? Face 
Phase three profit. Have you ever noticed that Wyclef is the only Fuji that stayed out of prison? <laughs> I don't know, man. Walking around Manhattan with a with you know with with uh, Alice Cooper's AK forty seven uh, guitar probably not a good way to stay out of prison. And no, and he still didn't get arrested. He can walk around with a goddamn AK forty seven guitar. Lauren Hill wins all of the fucking Grammys, and she. And she can't spare any of that money to hire a mildly competent accountant? Uh, hell, you could pay a slightly retarded labradoodle in snossages to do your taxes, and it would have probably kept you done more to keep you out of jail than what, you, what you've already done. I have two things to say about this, and I really don't want to go off on, on a rant here because we need to close up. But this is why this is why people should always download the show. It's for these little Easter egg conversations we have. But um, you know, the, the first thing was: Do you think she'll be gay for the stay? I'm sorry. Now, do you think she'll be gay for the stay? I would give that about fifty-fifty odds. <laughs> and my and the second thing is. I think if we learned anything from UFC 158 is that, you know, when you're starting to make a lot of money, you have to hire. It's not pampering. You have to hire a lot of people to keep the money flowing and to keep your, you know, you're a brand, you're a business, and you have to hire people to keep the business running um, and keep the money flowing. Not pampering, you know Nick Diaz. That's how you operate a business. You know what, folks? I'm going to start the world's greatest Kickstarter here is my plan, and I'm actually really thinking about doing this. I want to do a very special Long Road to Ruin podcast. I don't care where in the country we have to go to do it. I don't care where on earth we have to go to do it. I want to get a general roundtable open Q&A discussion going between Lauren Hill, Rick Ross, Lil Wayne, Chris Brown, and Nick Diaz. <laughs> and we're going to call it Kool-Aid, Burgers, and Weed. My God. This is a thing that... I will line item this shit. I will... <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what? I will put line items in there to make sure that... To make sure that Lil Wayne can get him all the scissor that some ghetto retard can brew up in a bathtub. Um, you know what? I, I will make sure I will make sure we raise the doorways a few feet to make room for Lauren Hill's fro. Um, just somebody to act to. I don't care if you have to put him in a goddamn Hannibal Lecter type outfit to wheel him to the damn event to make sure we get Nick Diaz there. Rick Ross, I don't know. Trail of Skittles? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. What does motivate fuck fuck these days? Um, maybe, maybe we don't need to necessarily like go someplace. Maybe we can just get them all on a Google Hangout. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> oh, dear God. Because then I could just sit there with the popcorn just grinning maniacally at the chaos that ensues and knowing that I have managed to engineer the greatest thing in the history of all mankind. I will wear suspenders just so that when I turn into Larry King holding my head as it as I start to grow tumors in my brain from having to moderate a discussion between these idiots, that I actually look the part. 
That's the and as I said to Sean before this podcast started, I have a face for radio, folks. I I don't do video. I I I, I am audible, not visual. But I will I will be Larry King for this for the. For this. <laughs> I once told my father. I said, you know, I've got an uncle whose answer to everything is who cares, but he but he has to say it in the loudest voice possible. And you know, then my father who um, is like an access to uh, liberal Democrat. Um, and then he's got a couple of Italian friends who are, if you've ever had old Italian men in a room, you know, they can be sort of loud and opinionated. Uh, so I I said, I wanted to moderate a podcast. I want to get them all on Google hangout and I want to moderate a podcast. My father and, and my uncle and these two old Italian dudes and just like throw a topic at them and sit back and listen to them yell at one another. <laughs> oh, and, and the last that... <laughs> I was, I was going to say the, the last thing I want to plug for a little bit of additional entertainment I put this up on um, the channel the other day um, I really like to plug my friend's work when I have a chance to um, by all means if you need some extra laughs this week uh, my good friend Allison Pregler also from that guy with the glasses um, is in the midst of a quite frankly astonishingly entertaining uh, look at all eight seasons of Charmed. Uh, she is going through and watching and breaking down each and every last one. And if you've ever seen her show Obscure Lupa Presents, you know that she's funny enough as it is. Um, this is her more so being both funny and sometimes genuinely aghast at Aaron Spelling's attempt to duplicate the lightning in a bottle that was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, Go to that guy with the glasses or go to her Blip TV channel and check it out. She just recently posted the four 15-minute videos that comprise her look at Season 5. I, however, would recommend actually going back and watching all the seasons up to this point um, because... It's it's great if you genuinely love old school genre television and you can just kind of peel away the nostalgia goggles for a little bit. All right, uh, real quick, I just want to um, go through a couple of my plugs. Um, in addition to uh, doing my own podcasts for 401mania.com and Manic Expressions and anyone else that will listen to them, so we've got the Sunday 9, nine o'clock MMA show, Tuesday nights um, um we have Long Road to Ruin and Opposite Long Road to Ruin, the 401 Music Zone podcast. Um, and then as the summer blockbuster movies roll out, uh, the ones that I get to see, I'll partner up with Jeff and we'll do a supplementary podcast that'll be up um, that the, the week after we see the movie. But in addition to that, I also do a political uh, sort of satirical uh, podcast with John Brodigan from, uh, from the right com. So nine o'clock, check out the right hook uh, from the right radio.com. And uh, as I said, in addition to doing my own uh, branded podcast, I also guest appear on the Casual Heroes podcast, both their wrestling cast and their fight cast with uh, Gavin Napier, Chris, and Jed. Uh, so if you go over to the casualheroes.com and check out their podcast, I'm on the last MMA one and I'm on the last uh, couple of wrestling ones. So please give those a listen, and I believe that's it. The next time you can hear my uh, my sultry voice, as I've been told, 
Uh, it is 9 o'clock Sunday night uh, for the next MMA show, where we'll be previewing Luke Rockhold versus uh, Vitor Belfort, UFC on FX8. All right. Um, so we'll see you all in two weeks on the next Long Road to Ruin. For Sean Comer, I am the mandated reporter, Mr. Mark Radledge. Be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>